years. Um, that has never happened to me in over 20-some years. And so coming here, having uh, June 1st is when we arrived. The Sunday before that, I preached my last sermon in my church. Uh, very t difficult day. We preached our last sermon. We got in our vehicles, and we drove here. And the very next Sunday, I show up here, and nobody except for Nick knows any anything of who we are. And it was wonderful because I got to walk into your church, to now my church, and be greeted by many, many of you. And I just want to say to you, we so appreciated the warm welcome that you gave us. And many of you coming and asking us who our names were and greeting us and just being incredibly uh, welcoming to us. And so we, we have felt very welcomed by you and very thankful to be a part of your church and, and now our church together. So we're glad to be here. We love it. And we're so thankful for you. And I also want to say, before we open the word, uh, I want to I say thanks to the, the people that sit in the back and do the sound stuff. You know, um, if you get a chance every once in a while, thank those guys, because usually nobody notices them until a little buzz like that happens, right? We, noti we notice them when something goes wrong, but we don't usually just on a regular basis thank them. And those who lead worship as well and uh, on a regular basis here and, and Ruth, uh, it takes a lot of behind-the-scenes work to prepare your heart to do that kind of stuff. So I, I appreciate those who do that kind of work. And uh, so um, enough about that, however. Uh, we are excited to be a part of the church here, and our purpose to be here today uh, is not for you to hear about me, but to hear from God, to hear from His Word. And so we're going to do that. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to begin reading in, in verse 28, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And uh, as, as uh, Nick mentioned, and, and I do want to just say, um, Nick has been s such a blessing to me. And I'm so thankful for your pastor, and now my pastor. It's wonderful to now say, I have a pastor. Um, and, uh, but I am so thankful for this man. And uh, he loves God's word. And it has been a blessing for me to meet with him just to talk and pray. And his, his wife, Stephanie, has been a huge blessing. When we first got here, uh, on my doorstep uh, were cinnamon rolls. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to win my heart over, but that's... That, that, that does it right there. So, uh, but they, she's been such a blessing to our family. They've both been such a blessing to us. And this, uh, this is a challenging transition for us. And so we're so thankful for them. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage, er, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You will say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, there is much, much to talk about in this passage of Scripture. And so, God, I pray in these moments that we have together, that you would give me clarity in speaking and that you would give us eyes to see what you would have us see in your word today through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear your word and that you would give us hearts that would be fertile, that we would receive it with great joy that you would bring conviction of sin in our lives today, that you would encourage and build us up, God, that we would be faithful, that we would be followers of yours, that, that we would love your son Jesus as we should. And so, God, we pray in these moments that your spirit would come here and that you would cause us to receive your word and be blessed. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and for our good, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nick gave me a lot to talk about, um, and so uh, so I figured today we got till noon, right? Nobody eats until twelve. Um, my, uh, I have to laugh. My daughter. Uh, uh, Josh asked my daughter uh, how long her dad speaks, and she said, he speaks long, but he keeps it interesting. <laughs> What's not interesting about the Word of God, right? Well, today's passage is a passage that is filled with ironies. It's filled with tons of irony. It, it's like, it, it's like uh, some of the most extreme contrasts that you could possibly imagine in this passage of Scripture that that are represented here. Kind of like life. As I was thinking about this passage, I thought about uh, Leslie Gore's 1963 uh, number one hit single that many of you know, mostly through a movie, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. Remember that song? Ironically, as I was thinking about this passage, that I was reading something, and this that I was reading, that song was mentioned, and uh, the song is is those are two things that don't go together, do they? It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. We don't think about parties and crying 
But if you read that song, the lyrics to the song, it's about a girl who at her party that was thrown for her, her the, the guy that she liked ends up liking another guy. And so she's at her own party thrown for her, and she's grieving, going, it's my party, but I will cry if I want to. I, it's this, this completely uh, mixed moment in her life. And the reality is that's this passage of Scripture. It's filled with incredible contrast, incredible irony. The, the crowd comes with this enthusiastic admiration, and yet we know in this story that is called, oftentimes we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Of course, if, you, if we only had the account of Luke, we would not be calling it that, because Luke doesn't mention anything about palm branches here, uh, only the other ones. But we, we have this sense of, of enthusiastic anticipation, and yet on the other side, we know from this story, and we will see that there's really a shallowness to what's going on here. There's, there's this hypocrisy that's happening at the same time. There's, there's, in fact, amongst the people, and I know Pastor Nick has talked a lot about the backdrop of this, the people were anticipating that the king who would come would come and set up an earthly kingdom. Right now, he's going to overthrow their enemies. The, the Jewish people were occupied by Rome, and they had a love-hate relationship. There was all these political tensions that were going on. And so here they see what is most likely in their minds the Messiah who is to come. And because of their circumstances of the day, they were hopeful that this was the one who would come and he would take an army and he would overthrow their enemies and restore to his people peace on earth. And so there's this whole sense of anticipation of what this Messiah will do. And yet on the other side, in the midst of this intense and anticipation and enthusiasm, there's going to be a sorrowful pronouncement of judgment. There's celebration going on here, and yet there's going to be condemnation. They looked for a conquering king, but that king is going to say some very tough things to them. In fact, you could say it this way, as one commentator said, the king has come to at his own coronation in which he's being handed the throne and yet the king refuses it and instead pronounces judgment. This is not completely out of line. Uh, in fact, it's right in line with the context that Pastor Nick preached uh, right before this passage in the, in the very parable that happened right before this where we saw a, a king, a master, who was incredibly compassionate and loved to bless his people who who were faithful and to entrust more things to them, but those who were unfaithful, those who rejected him, those who wrongfully mischaracterized the master, they faced utter judgment. And so we see a king gracious and merciful to his people, and yet to those who reject him, we see that they will face this judgment. And now we see this unfold as Jesus shows us the same picture. And he says, in fact, in verse 28, when he had said these things, that is the things right prior to this, about the judgment, about blessing those who were faithful and judging those who had rejected him. When he had said these things, then he went on up to Jerusalem, which in 951, verse, chapter 9, verse 51, this has been the trajectory of Jesus' life from the start. He set his face to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to Jerusalem. There was... There was a fulfillment that needed to happen, and this is the, the trajectory of his whole ministry life. And so we see in these preparations, he begins to make preparations to enter Jerusalem. 
and he sends his disciples in these preparations. And what we're going to see as he makes these preparations, we're going to see three things here, but in in these preparations that he makes, we're going to see Jesus revealed as a sovereign, omniscient king. That Jesus is seen as being in total control of these chaotic circumstances that are about to unfold in this whole week of his, last week of his life on this earth. We see these chaotic circumstances unfold, but Jesus is seen here and throughout as a sovereign, omniscient king who knows exactly what he's doing and is in total control of the circumstances. And so he says here that he's drawing near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And so he tells these disciples to go into the city and find this colt donkey that had never been ridden and he says if the owner or when the owner asks you why you are untying it you just tell him that the Lord has need of it now in our our translating that into our culture that's always a strange thing for us right I was thinking about this in my house this morning and I thought maybe it's a similar to me walking across the road and jumping in my neighbor's car starting it up and he comes out and says hey what gives what what are, you, what are you doing? It's, hey, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know? Um, it wasn't quite that way in their culture. And so we have to give a little bit of understanding here. It was not unusual for someone of high authority to come and say to you that they needed something that you had, and you, because of your rank, and since they would pull rank on you, you would give it to them. If they came and, and they needed something from you, a, a governor or a king would come and say, I need that. I need to use that. You would say, okay, I'll, I'll let you use that. Now, in many cases, it wasn't an option, right? But this wasn't unusual here. But what it reveals about Jesus is that he is the king. He is the ultimate king, and he owns everything. He is the master of the universe. All of it is his, and therefore he has the right to all of it, without question, right? He's the sovereign king who rules, and everything belongs to him, and therefore he has the right to everything. And so when the disciples say the Lord has need of it, it's as if to say it is his already, and he needs it, and so absolutely take it. So this is what happens. They go in to the town and the the owner asks and they say the Lord has need of it. We don't know if there's any other conversation that went on. Just that. It just stops right there. It doesn't give us any other detail. And so they took this, this colt. Now there's a reality to this story, a backdrop that, that Luke doesn't mention. The other gospels mention why this colt donkey is so crucial. But Luke doesn't mention that, and there's a reason for that, and it's important as you read your Bible to understand a few of these details because it'll help you understand why a gospel writer would leave out this detail and add in this detail. And in the gospel of Luke, he's writing to a man named Theophilus who was a Greek. He was, and, and, and for instance, in the gospel of Matthew or 
or in, in some of the other Gospels, Mark or John, when they mention, they point out very specifically, this is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is a fulfillment. He wanted a colt donkey that had never been ridden in fulfillment. Jesus was fulfilling specifically to the letter the prophecies that were spoken about him in Zechariah 9, verse 9. But Luke doesn't mention that. He doesn't make a big deal of it. It's good to know why would he omit that. Because he's talking to a Gentile audience. He's talking to those, he's not trying to convince them as the same as Matthew would to a Jewish audience to help them understand how all of their history points to Jesus being the Messiah. He's talking to a Gentile audience. He's trying to show them that Jesus is the Lord in a very different way. And so here he, he's in the backdrop, however, is Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And it tells us, in fact, it would have informed these Jewish people, these, these worshipers that day, it would have informed them about how they should understand their king coming. But they were blinded by their own political circumstances. They were reading into their scriptures in the Old Testament their own circumstantial things that were happening with the Roman Empire in that day. They were blinded by that. So they were hoping a king was going to come and overthrow, come as a conquering king, riding on a horse with an army, overthrowing the Roman government, and yet their scriptures said, never said that's the way he was coming. It says very simply in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he was going to come humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's how he was coming. But they looked at the circumstances of their day and they completely missed it. I think there's a gentle rebuke for us as Christians in that. We too are susceptible to watching the 24-hour news cycle and reading our Bibles in light of those things, right? Be careful. Read what the scriptures actually say about these things because it completely skewed their vision. It completely blinded them to the reality of the coming of the Messiah and it made a huge difference. Let us not be those who get wrapped up in all of that. Let us look to God. Let us look to his word and see in it what it actually says about the coming king. Because it clearly states that he was coming in this moment humble, not conquering, not at least armies. He was going to come humble as a sacrifice for sin. This is also proclaimed in Isaiah in Jeremiah, right? He was going to come in this way, and they completely missed this. In fact, the second coming of Christ, the second time he comes, he will not come this way. It declares that he will come in wrath, in judgment. He will gather his people to himself, and he will deal with evil. But the first time he comes, and we see it unfold here, he will come humble, mounted on a donkey, and he comes and he fulfills Zechariah 9, verse 9, to the letter. To the very letter, he shows that he's qualified to do this in his fulfillment of this. And so I want you to picture this. At this moment, there's, there's all of these travelers coming, these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. It's Passover, right? The, the, the road that Jesus would have been on and his disciples would be flooded with millions of people coming into Jerusalem. And they would be coming into Jerusalem to offer sacrifice and to celebrate Passover that's when this is all unfolding. So all of these people are already going to Jerusalem. And, it, and so this, the text goes on to say they, they put a coat over the donkey. They sat Jesus on it. 
and he began to head down the road. And as he was drawing near, near to Jerusalem, now I want you just to imagine too, Bethany, uh, Bethany and Jerusalem, uh, there was a mountain, three mountains actually, that stand between Jerusalem and Bethany, and you, you couldn't see Jerusalem from Bethany, but when you got to the Mount of Olives, up on the top of it, you could see the whole city, you could look over the whole thing. And so this is the trek that they're taking up and then down into Jerusalem. And so they're on this road, there's tons and tons of worshipers, and this spontaneous thing breaks out. They, they begin to, first of all, it says, as they were drawing near, it says the whole multitude of his disciples be, began to rejoice and praise God. There's this spontaneous worship that breaks out, but before that, they begin to lay down their, their basically, it'd be like us laying down our coats taking off their outer garments, they lay them down on the floor. It's like the red carpet moment with the Oscars, right? They're laying out this carpet. They're making a path. But there's something significant in this culture about that. To lay down their cloaks when a king would ride into town, most often at his coronation, or a king who would ride into town after a victorious battle, defeating his enemies, they would lay down these cloaks, their cloaks, their coats, on the street, and it was a symbol in their culture of submission to the king. It was a way of saying, I am putting myself under the king. Right? What a beautiful picture we have here. Now, I just want to keep us, keep our feet on the ground, however, about the irony that's going on here, because it says in John chapter 12 that these disciples did not understand a lick of what was going on. That's what it says. Until Jesus was glorified after his resurrection, it says, then they remembered these things. And that's in John 12, in the same context of this story of the triumphal entry. But nevertheless, it's true, right? What they were doing was right. They were setting their cloaks. They were saying that they were coming underneath in submission to the king. Right? And so this is what's going on. And they break out in this spontaneous praise. They, they break out in praise saying, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and that phrase, to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is to say that he's coming with all authority. That he's coming as a king who has all authority from God. He is, he in fact, has God's authority. And we know he is God. And so they're saying this. As this multitude is gathering, now this is not only the people that were already on the road gathering around to do this, but we find in John and we find in the other Gospels that people began to come, as he got close, they began to come out of the city. And they began to join this little processional. By the way, the palm branches that are absent in our text today, those were a, a way uh, of, it was a symbol when they waved palm branches of joy. In a sense, it was a way of, of waving joy, you know, like, and so they, they, would, they would wave these palm branches as a way of rejoicing with the king in his victory. It was a symbol of joy. And so Luke doesn't mention that detail here, uh, and so that's why if we only had the Gospel of Luke, we wouldn't have it called Palm Sunday. It wouldn't be called that at all. But, uh, but, but nevertheless, he comes in, they are praising him. Now I want you to note, Jesus never let this kind of thing happen until this very moment. If you remember back or read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus con continually held this stuff back and, and wouldn't let 
his people, his disciples, burst out in this kind of moment. But the time had come. Now it was time. And just to be blunt, now Jesus intentionally realizes it's time to let them do it. In, and it's going to tick off the religious leaders. Because the ultimate aim is that he is going to be crucified and die on a cross. And so it's okay now. The time is now. So it's okay to let them let them do as they will. Let them praise him and rejoice and, and celebrate. And so, why did they praise him, though? Did you notice what it says? Why did they praise him? It says they began to do this. It says, for they praised him and rejoiced with allowance for all the mighty works that they had seen. All the mighty works that they had seen. Not the least of which was just prior to this moment in the text, if you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, now if you really want to make those who are in love with power and authority mad, steal the show, right? In essence, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the religious establishment there was furious because everyone was coming out to Jesus. Everyone was going to him, and not the least of which was on their minds, the fact that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they were praising him and rejoicing because of all the things that they had seen. They were completely blown away by this, and so they came out and poured out there uh, in, in droves, praising and rejoicing over what Jesus had done, for the miracles that he had done. This was their motivation. Now, they... They still, in the backdrop, remember the shallowness of this, the, the misunderstanding. They're still thinking about national aspirations here. They still hope that he's the king who's going to conquer. Um, and by the way, one little note again, he doesn't say the word Hosanna in here like the other Gospels do either. Why would he leave that out? Why would the other Gospel writers put that in? Because they were writing to Jewish, a Jewish audience in the other Gospel writers, and the word Hosanna, which developed over time and became more intensified, was a way that the Jewish people, especially on the way to Passover, would cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he in, who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a way of crying out to God, saying, save us. They, their political situation, their circumstances were dire and desperate, and they were crying out to God, God, save us. Hosanna is, is what they would cry out, and it became an even deeper cry where they would say, save us, please. The word actually developed over time. It became a more desperate plea to this very moment. And so, but Luke wouldn't mention that because that was a particularly Jewish thing, right? Theophilus wouldn't, wouldn't really care about that. What, that wasn't the issue he was trying to get at with Theophilus. And so, he comes into town. Now, not everyone is excited, as we have said. We find here that the Pharisees, and just to be fair, you have to understand a little of where they're coming from no matter what, they, they're looking at this going, only God deserves this kind of praise. Only God is worthy, and they are right. They are absolutely 100% right, but their blindness to the reality that the very God was standing in their presence kept them from understanding the moment, which is what Jesus is going to condemn them for. And so here they are, the Pharisees, they're saying to Jesus, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop this blasphemous praise of you. 
And so you understand what the Old Testament scriptures would say about this, that, that they, they should be stoning him. This is blasphemous, blasphemous work that's going on. They're praising a man in their mind, and they're saying, teacher, you should stop your disciples from doing this. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That doesn't mean what we think it means. Let me, let me tell you why. We often think this. Just, you just think about this in your mind. When you've heard that, those words, uh, I can even think of sermon titles, my own sermon titles in the past. Um, we often think that means that Jesus is saying that if, you, if these people don't praise me, the rocks are actually going to praise me. And so we think of things like, well, we don't want the rocks to outpraise us, right? We don't want that to happen. We, we want to be those who worship God fervently. We don't want inanimate objects to give glory to God when we should be giving glory to God. But that's actually not what, I, I think, not what he's actually saying here. Let me put a twist on this for you. He's, he's saying here, in, in this very moment, let me give you a context. Habakkuk. How many of you read Habakkuk last week? Not very many of you, probably. All right. Listen to what, and this is one of several texts in the Old Testament that talk about this very same thing. Listen to the context here. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, it says, I'm not going to read it all. I'll give you a little context. But listen to what he says. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond, saying, Woe to you. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What he's doing here is he's, he's pronouncing judgment on the Chaldeans who had become wealthy and built big houses and they had done it through, uh, through evil gain. They had done it through killing, murderous treachery. They had become wealthy. They had built these great houses. They become rich. Through, through evil ways. And, and what the prophet is saying is that, woe to you that when I come and I judge you and I tear down these buildings, those stones are going to cry out. And what are they crying out? They're pronouncing judgment upon you. They stand as a testimony against your treachery against me, God says. Isn't that an interesting context? So we go back to our passage, and Jesus is saying that these very stones, if these, who are these? It's the, it's the people who are there, who are, who are currently praising God. It says, when these people stop giving me praise, the stones are going to cry out. And what are they going to cry out? They're going to cry, they're going to testify against them that they have built their house not on the Lord. It's going to testify against their religiousness, their, their evil, wicked ways, their rejection of God. Now, connect this for a minute. Just, just, just in, in, think about this. Jesus is said to be, in Isaiah 8, uh, in Psalm 118, where this quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, is referred to there as what? the stone that the builders rejected, right? So there's some stuff for you to think about this afternoon when you're sitting in your, your easy chair reclining. Think about this. So Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected that stands as a testimony against them. 
And here, even in this very moment, there's a real fulfillment that's going to happen, because, which brings us to the, the last part of this. We've talked about the, the fact that he's made these preparations, which reveals Jesus as this sovereign, omniscient king who knows everything, who's in control. We've seen the praise that, that reveals him as the one who is worthy of praise. He's worthy of this praise that they're giving him, no matter what their motives are. But we also see that Jesus, at the very pinnacle, at the very height of this celebration, there's this incredible plot twist where Jesus is going to say some things that, are, that, that, that kill the party. Literally, put a stop to it all. Y- you know what that's like, right? When you're watching a movie and you're going along and you, th- you think it's, you got it all figured out and then all of a sudden something happens that just completely messes everything you thought up. Like they kill the wrong guy, right? You know what that's like, right? You're, you're going along and you think you've got it figured out. There's this intense sort of plot that's been unfolding and then all of a sudden there's a plot twist. Everything, everything you thought comes to a screeching halt and, and it just completely messes with you, right? Like sometimes I'm even thinking, I don't even like this show anymore, right? You have those moments, right? This is what happens here. There's this incredible celebration going on, and at the very height of the celebration, Jesus, who's the sovereign king, who knows everything, who understands what's really going on in the present moment, also understands what's going to be going on in the future, and he pronounces in the midst of this celebration an incredible announcement of judgment. Listen to what he says in verse 41. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, in the midst of his party, In the midst of the celebration, it says he wept over the city. This word in the Greek for weep here is the strongest word you can possibly use for weeping. It's the type of weeping that maybe you've experienced in your life that is intense, deep, sobbing, uncontrollable, to the core, He's weeping and he's sobbing and he says this, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What is he weeping over? He's looking at his, this city. He's looking at his own people. We see words in this. Whoops, that was good. We see words in the backdrop like of John that says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him, right? And Jesus looks over his people, he looks over the city, and he weeps because they were ignorant of what would actually bring them peace. They thought that political, that, that having a conquering king to come and overthrow the Romans and set things up, put everything right in their minds, they thought that would bring peace. And Jesus says, He's revealing that they had missed, they completely missed what Jesus really came to do, the kind of peace that he came to bring. It wasn't political. It wasn't a military deal. It was a peace that was internal. It was a peace that comes by faith and repentance. And they completely were blinded to this. They could not see it because of their circumstances, because of what was going on. They didn't understand the scriptures. They were ignorant. And for that fact, Jesus weeps over this city. He grieves. He says, would that you, even you, the reason why he puts a double emphasis there is because he's he's saying, even you, that is my people, Israel, 
whom I made these promises to, whom I said that all the promises of God to bring about the Messiah would be fulfilled in Christ. And here I've come to my people. These things are all being fulfilled in this moment. And my own people have missed the very reason I've come. They've completely missed it. And Jesus pronounces these very difficult words. He says, but now... Not only have they missed it because of their ignorance and the blindness of their sinfulness, he says, but now these things are hidden from their eyes. In other words, Jesus says, you're not going to see them. And then he goes on to say that there's going to come a day, a day that will come upon you, not by your choosing, when your enemies will set up a barricade. And they did just that. In 70 A.D., these things unfolded. Your enemy will set up a barricade. They will surround you. They will hem you in on every side, and they will tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you are going to be completely left behind. And interestingly, in s- this all began. It unfolded in 70 A.D., if you know a little bit of the history, but it actually began in 66 A.D., Because the Jewish people tried to do on their own accord what they thought Jesus should have done. They began what was called in that day the Jewish revolt against Rome. They completely backfired and led to this moment in which the judgment of God predicted by Jesus unfolds in incredible detail. They surrounded the city. In fact, they first buried, if you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, they put these wooden walls up in front of the gates. The Jews burnt those down. So they built a wall, literally hemmed them in all around the city of Jerusalem. They surrounded them with their army, and they, they began to siege the city for day upon day upon day. And, and it is recorded that maybe some two-plus million people were killed and slaughtered. And, as Jesus says here, not one stone was left upon another. The very stones cried out in judgment against them, testifying to what? That you did not know the time of your visitation. Those are incredibly powerful words. And you might be saying, okay, all this stuff, Chris, what does this mean for us? Like, it has intense application for us today. In light of the fact that Jesus has come, in light of the fact that we know the gospel, we know that Jesus has come, that he has died on the cross for our sins, he has shed his own blood, that he was resurrected three days later, that he now seated at the right, is now seated at the right hand of the Father where all things, even now, are being placed under his feet. See the whole picture here? In light of that, the author of Hebrews says, if we, if we, in light of such a great salvation as that, if, if God, in fact, let me just read the words of Hebrews chapter 2 to you. He says this, Therefore, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. You catch that? It's more intense for us in light of the coming of Christ. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, For since the message declared by angels, that is in the Old Testament, declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution in the Old Testament, how shall we, if we neglect such a great salvation in the New Covenant, how shall we escape judgment if we neglect this great salvation? In light of what we know, my question to you today is, do, have you, even now, have you missed the day of this visitation? Jesus has come. He's calling us out of darkness into light. He has come. He has paid the price for our sins. He has died on the cross. In fact, people say of Jesus oftentimes, they'll say, well, that's okay for you because you need, uh, you know, for those who need a crutch or something to lean on in their lives, you know, then, then that's good. I, I understand that. But it's far more serious than that, isn't it? Because the picture we get in this passage of, of God's wrath being poured out on the city of Jerusalem because they missed and rejected the Messiah, this is just a taste, right? This is just a taste. It's this earthly little picture of what one day when Jesus comes, his second coming, it's going to be far more serious than this. Far more serious, right? He's going to come, and in fact, in, in Revelation chapter 6, it says, we never, we never put these, I was thinking about the stained glass windows we put up in churches. They often are with, I had this in a church uh, that planted our church in Kansas, or in South Dakota. It's always Jesus holding the lamb, you know, nice. And that's not an unreal picture, like that's right, he's, he's the good shepherd, right? There's, there's passages that talk about that. But I'm always like, where's the stained glass window that represents Revelation 6? Where it says, on that day, when the lamb, calls him a lamb, when the lamb comes and he pours out his judgment on those who have rejected him, it says that the people will run to the mountains and they will pray and beg the rocks of the mountains to fall on them and crush their skulls so that the wrath of the lamb, they would not have to face the wrath of the lamb. Right? That's, that's an intense picture. Like, how would you put that on a stained glass window, right? It's a little different picture than what we have. But, but I tell you that not to scare you to death, but to show you how valuable, how precious Jesus is. Because for those, for those who see, for those who hear the gospel, those who see the reality of the truth of the coming of Jesus Christ and realize that we are wretched sinners, that we deserve such wrath, and yet, God, in his great love and his great mercy for us, has sent his son. And his son has absorbed in his own body. This is what we do when we take communion and we eat the bread, right? We're, he's absorbed in his body the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Jesus has taken it upon himself. He's absorbed it on your behalf. This is good news. And not only that, he has shed his blood and his blood cleanses us from all sin so that when we stand before a righteous and a holy God, we will not be condemned. He will not hold us accountable for our sins because Jesus has already paid for all of our sins. And this is why Jesus is far more than a crutch. He is your Savior. He is your only hope. So I encourage you this morning to consider today if this is how serious it was for them, 
Let us not be those who reject so great a salvation. Let us be those who will stand before our God and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. He will look at you and he won't see not even one mistake you have ever made in your life because Jesus has paid for it all. He will see you as holy, righteous. He will see you as a son, a firstborn son, which, by the way, is not a sexist statement. He says in the Bible, every one of us, male, female, every race, all, all across this nation, all of this world, will be adopted into his family as a firstborn son. You know what that means? He's saying that no matter who we are, for those who get adopted into my family, you inherit everything. You get to be a firstborn son. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful picture. You get it all. And this is why, this is why we should rightly worship Christ. This is why he is so precious. I'm in one of those dilemmas at this moment because there's a lot left in this passage. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate that. Let me just close it with this, though. Jesus, right after this, this little procession that he's a part of that has this little twist, it ends at the, at the temple. If you read the other Gospels, it says he went back to Bethany that night and, and rested. So imagine this. Jesus goes to the temple. After all this pronouncement of judgment, all this, the, the things that he has said and the weeping, he, he ends at the temple. And it says he, in, in John that he goes back home. Goes back home, meaning Bethany, which was a home base for him where Lazarus lived and Mary and Martha. He goes back there and stays a night. And he comes back the next day. And he goes into that temple. And I, I just, this is just a, a moment for me, but I, I just imagine what he saw that night before he went and rested. He went that night back to Bethany with this, with this horrific thing going on in his temple. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the temple was made up of courts. You had the big, huge area called the court of the Gentiles. You had the holy place and the most holy place. This outer court, it was like the county fair. It, it, was, it was booths, money changers, all kinds of stuff going on. And there were, there were religious people who were, who were basically running a racket out of God's house, out of the temple. And, and Jesus saw that. He goes and sleeps on it. He comes back the next day, and this gentle lamb, he is furious. And why is he furious? This just affirms his judgment of, that he's just pronounced on them. He's furious because, because all of these pilgrims that are coming to the temple, millions of people coming to worship God, and they, they were all coming there, and some of them, it was such a far to travel that they couldn't bring their own sacrifice, and so they would have to buy a sacrifice at the temple, and they were charging up to ten times more for that sacrifice. And not only that, your sacrifice that you did bring had to be inspected by the chief priest to see if it was worthy of being a sacrifice, which it was to their advantage to declare it not worthy of being a right sacrifice, so you would still have to buy another lamb or pigeon or dove, whatever you could afford, at ten times the price. They were, they were profiting off of people who were genuinely coming to worship God. These were the religious leaders, the chief priests, they were doing this. And then you had to pay the temple tax. And even that 
was a racket because they would come and they wouldn't accept your money. You had to make an exchange so that you could pay it in the right money, right? I was just in Canada last week in Calgary and had to do the exchange, which thankfully at this point is in my favor. <laughs> Pretty good deal. And, uh, but, uh, but, but they were, they were basically, they would, you would give them five bucks, you know, and they'd give you a couple back. They were taking advantage of people who were coming with genuine hearts of worship. And Jesus is furious with this. He will have nothing of it. He, he runs them out, overturns the table, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer. Now, there's so much we want to say about this, but let me just say this. The beautiful picture here is that for those of us who are in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are the temple of God. That there's no longer a temple built by the hands of men. But, but as a believer in Christ in whom the Spirit of God has taken up residence in us, that our bodies are a temple of the living God, right? A temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. This is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 6 so adamantly. He's saying, don't do immoral things in, my, in, in the temple, right? Use your body in a right way because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's this picture. This is where God dwells. Let us be those who live faithfully, trusting in Christ, that, that God's presence will be seen and known in us, that we are the temple of God. And, and this, this is the picture that ultimately plays out in the New Testament. Let us rejoice and be thankful that we are that temple uh, in Christ. Um, and so I encourage you this morning, there's like about a million application things we could do here, but I, I'm going to stop and, uh, and just leave it at that. But I encourage you to go home, read this passage, consider this morning, do you know this Christ? Have you put the full weight of your life on him and trusted him for your salvation? And if so, rejoice, be thankful. If not, I encourage you, repent, turn from your sin, trust in Christ, believe in him. He is our hope for salvation. Let us pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much for this rich passage. There's so much here. But God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, who died a death that we could not die, paying the price for our sin, who is even now, was resurrected and even now is seated at your right hand, that one day all things will be completely put under your feet. And God, I pray today that each one of us would be like these worshipers. We would, in a, in a sense, throw our cloaks under his feet. If we would submit ourselves completely to this Christ because he is good. He has sacrificed himself for our sake, for our benefit that we might be saved. Thank you, God, for this reality. Thank you for this truth. Let us sing even now. Let us sing with our whole hearts in thanksgiving to him. And we pray this in your name. Amen.